0: Welcome to Moments of Clarity. My name is Matthew Sortino and with me is
1: Toby Kent. Hey Matt. Hi everyone. Toby, something special for us today? Indeed. It is special because we're not recording in our normal studio and uh, we're down in my office that I share with my friend and, and today's, one of today's guests, Brett Ellis. And that means we're meeting on the lands of the alicot Willem of the Bunurong. Butoram- peoples of the Kulin Nation and as ever we'd like to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and of course any Elders who may be listening wherever they may be in the world today. Thank you Toby and you mentioned one of our guests today, it
0: is a special episode, we're going to be doing something different, a conversation with four of us rather than three as per usual. Four of you and me four of us we've cloned ourselves it's a new discovery we'd like to announce to
1: It's a big announcement this everyone. is going to be a big episode
0: Huge episodes. there is Live. a
1: form of genetic engineering in it or there genes is. can you explain that we? Yeah So as hopefully everyone appreciates everyone all of our regular listeners and Matt and I put a lot of thought into who we get on and Matt and I were talking about things that were close to our hearts both professionally and personally uh, and, and Matt, we've had a couple of great conversations uh, with educators recently, Darren Pereira, Adriano Di Prato. And, and Matt, was you were pushing back to me, I mean in a positive way, saying it'd be great to get back to some of your work. And I suddenly realised that it's quite a rare opportunity to have my dad, who normally lives in the UK, here in Melbourne. And I have been interested in a while in a conversation between my dad and my at the time of recording, soon-to-be former business partner but very much ongoing friend, Brett Ellis, to really have uh, an exploration of themes around disaster preparedness, uh, emergency relief uh, and some of the resilience work that I do. So as we were thinking about this, uh, that seemed like too good an opportunity to miss.
2: Yeah,
0: absolutely. Um, It would be too good of an opportunity to miss because even in my – small dealings with both so far it's been great so we're looking forward to getting this recording underway let me introduce our guests for today we have dr randolph kent who holds professorships at king's college london and also at university college london he is a senior associate fellow at the royal united services institute prior to those appointments he directed the humanitarian futures program at king's college london during a distinguished career at the united nations randolph served as the un resident and humanitarian coordinator for somalia as well as Humanitarian Coordinator in Kosovo, Rwanda and the Chief of the United Nations Emergency Unit in Sudan. He was also the Chief of Emergency Prevention and Preparedness in Ethiopia. We also have Brett Ellis, who's been awarded an Emergency Services Medal in Australia and has an impressive record as a Senior Executive in State and Local Government in Victoria, also working with community organisations and small business in areas as diverse as emergency management, public safety safety environmental management, risk management and societal resilience. Brett began his career in life-saving, but his expertise has seen him go on to oversee a number of relief and recovery efforts, including following the tragic car accident in Flinders Street, Melbourne in 2017, playing frontline roles during and after Victoria's Black Saturday bushfires in 2009 and supporting community recovery planning for the Black Summer bushfires that struck Australia's eastern states in 2019-2020. Impeccable records, and looking forward to hearing so much more from um, yeah this star-studded lineup that you've conjured up here, Toby. So well, yeah. I mean, in Dad's case, he conjured me up, technically. <laughs> yeah, it's a chicken and egg scenario, isn't it, with a podcast? I mean, what uh, came first? I mean, the, the
1: guest I mean, invitation or the birth of you? I was going to say because I mean, it was quite clear which came first. And <laughs> uh, I'm not in the chicken and egg scenario, but in the Dad and my scenario.
0: Yes, we we won't go into the chicken and egg scenario.
1: Yeah. Let's leave that one alone. Um, (laughs) Okay. So I think one of the things that's interesting about this format is, you know, normally we ask people to give a bit of background about themselves and and it's, I think, maybe a bit more of a conversation this time with the four of us. Brett's even kind of brought in some cheese and ham so we can make it like a dinner conversation.
0: Yeah. Let's get our guests on. Randolph, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Thank you very much. Thank you. As we start here, we're going to have to come up with a way to make sure that we're not always talking over each other because that's what I tend to do with you, Toby, and you with me. So no,
1: I, I don't, but you're quite rude.
0: <laughs> so um, just so at the get-go, Brett, I'd love to know a little bit about your, uh, a bit about your personal story and about how you got to where you are professionally and some of the key moments that occurred in your life that led you to where you are today
3: yeah thanks Matt and hi Randolph and hi Toby it's good to be here my journey so uh, I suppose you know I went grew up in country Victoria down in a place called Bensdale but outside of Bensdale you know went to the local high school and sort of did did all those sort of things as, as you do growing up very much part of the sporting community and parents were always very big on on being part of the community so life members of the tennis club and life members of the football club and you know very much part of part of that so always been very much involved in in the community and and very much part of the fabric um so with that ethos uh i know i suppose i I got into surf life-saving down at lakes entrance and through some friends and the first week of uh doing life-saving we do what they call a bronze camp and I absolutely hated it, hated getting told what to do and and uh, how to do it and getting told to when to get up and, you know, you're getting up at sunlight and straight out into the water and it's cold and all that sort of stuff. But, um, yeah, I absolutely hated the bronze camp but uh, end up sticking around. My friends kept bringing me back down to Lake's entrance and... Uh, eventually got into what they call inflatable rescue boats and IRBs and loved the boats and I uh, ended up racing and competing in, in rescue boats and before too long I met a met a person called Hamish and he'd come down from Melbourne and uh, he was down there, I was lifeguarding so for the weekend and this guy was staying over at the clubhouse and I started chatting with him and he said, oh, I said, oh, what, what do you do with life saving? He said, oh, I actually work for life saving. I said, what? People actually get paid to do life saving? So by the end of the conversation with him, I said, oh, one day I'm going to have your job. And uh, sure enough, that sort of seeded something in my head and, and about five years later I, I, I had his job. So uh, ended up starting a job with Surf Lifesaving and um, haven't really looked back and that sort of led on to becoming the state state manager for Surf Lifesaving. When I started there was about three of us that were employed and by the time I'd finished there was 60 and we'd sort of merged the two life-saving organisations in Victoria into two and um, got adopted by the emergency services sort of sector at the time and got to a point uh, in my life where I was having an amazing time you know, with life-saving all around the world and writing international standards and uh, jumping out of helicopters and had all these toys available to myself and Ended up my my wife we, we had obviously had kids and uh, things had to change so I had to <laughs> pull, pull my my head in a little bit and sort of stay home a little bit more and so uh, ended up getting out of life saving and, and went to uh, local government so started off as an executive officer in uh, emergency management at a place or a Yarra Rangers Council so up in the Yarra Valley um, and I rang my wife uh, about two weeks into that coming off a fairly high profile job and said to my wife, I reckon I could do this job in three days and uh, I should have really kept my mouth shut because uh, three months later we got impacted by Black Saturday and um, I just never got to go home after months and months and months so we were just running on adrenaline uh, on the back of Black Saturday so we had you know, a fairly significant fire pushed through our whole you know, big parts of the Melbourne interface area and, um, you know, impacted... Quite significantly into communities and households.
1: And when Brett says, uh, quite a significant fire for anyone who's listening uh, who isn't in Victoria or in Australia, that was an absolutely devastating fire that killed 173 people, you know, and, and many more. In, in, as a result of the heat that preceded and as something that we may touch on in the conversation later but one of the things that we talk about in the work that we do is just it wasn't about the recovery didn't finish immediately with the dousing of the fires etc that there are people still today we're now in 2022 who are still recovering uh, and so on so uh, a little bit more than quite significant when you say that.
3: Yeah, and I suppose you hear it in my voice too. I sort of, It just sort of brings back those memories and for all of us, we actually live within that community as well. So it, it uh, you know, drives, drives home. So every day we, we go home, it's now, you know, 12, 13 years after that event. Oh, it's actually longer than that now. But, uh, you know, every time we drive down a road, the you know, the trees are all burnt still. There's, you know, evidence of a really hot fire going through that country. So, you know, it'll take generations for that country to come back.
1: And one of the reasons I was interested in having the conversation with Dad and Brett is because you are both experts in disaster relief, in preparedness, but in some ways you come from quite different scales and experiences and so we'll come back to picking up on what you were talking about some of the work you've done at the state level brett but i think given that we've kind of interjected uh dad maybe and i know some of this but it'd be fascinating for others and it'd be fascinating for me to hear how you would present you know your early life and kind of how it led to where the kinds of work that we're really talking about today
2: Thank you very much, indeed. I think if I look back and try to set the reasons why I have done what I have now done over the past 40 years, I think I begin with a reflection on the uncertainty that pervaded my life in the following senses. My mother's family fled... Austria stroke Germany, in the late 1930s, to survive. In one sense, that background was difficult to escape. They went to the United States, where I grew up, but again, it was that uncertainty that persisted throughout the 1950s and 60s in the United States, and that uncertainty was compounded by what then became the Vietnam War, which left here a question of, well, is this right? I asked, as a teenager, and why are we doing this? And it's not that I disagreed. It was that I just didn't know. I just didn't understand. So finally, when I left uh, university in the United States, it was, again, Another uncertainty. What should I do and where do I go? And I went to one of my professors and I said, What do you think I should do? And he said, Looking at your record, I wouldn't try to get into a postgraduate university in this country. So without any alternative, since my linguistic abilities are about as good as my abilities in the world of history, uh, that I went to England. And there I was in England with that consistent level of uncertainty. And that was, if I was called up for the Vietnam War, I'm not going to resist, but I'd go if I had to. So years passed by, I was never called up, and that uncertainty which pervaded so much of my life as I was growing up now became a question of, well, what is a proper way of living? What are the ways that I should be thinking about in terms of my own career? And what is happening in other parts of the world? And what, other, what was happening in other parts of the world was the run-up to the Ethiopian famine in the early 1980s. And for some reason, that uncertainty, that ambiguity, that where am I going, began to be reconciled by saying, if only I could help them. Maybe that would add a certain certainty to who I am, and at the same time really define who I'd want to be. So that was the launch, uh, and I uh, then uh, went into the humanitarian sector for the United Nations principally. And from that uncertainty, which is the background, to finally finding something that gave not only certainty but purpose explains in part what I'm doing here today. Thank you so much.
0: I'd love to touch on, well, fill in a gap there that I, that I noticed or, or a little bit of detail I'd like to get. What was it that led from uncertainty to finding that purpose prior to Ethiopia? Was Ethiopia the, the point that you said, I know what I'm going to do now, or had you already started that journey with, with an event or a piece of knowledge that, that you found?
2: What a very good question. The answer is... It wasn't just Ethiopia that was the switch that, if you like, changed the light. It was going back and doing different kinds of things. We set up a publishing company, but I wasn't really that engaged in the publishing. It was quite successful, but nothing to do with me. I was just happened to be there at the right time. Uh, I became an academic for a while uh, and teaching postgraduate courses to uh, people who were, if you like, in middle age, etc., from the military and all of that. But I thought it worthwhile. I enjoyed it. But it wasn't any direction that I felt would define, in a sense, who I was and who I wanted to be. So the answer is... In a perverse way, I was saved by the Ethiopian famine.
0: Wow! Yeah, I, I love that, Toby. Mm. You're in this field of um, of resilience. That's how we met with the chief, uh, chief resilience officer role that you had of Melbourne and the work that you'd had with Resilient Co as well. I'm I'm trying to find just I know we've had a conversation about your journey, but do you hearing these two? Um, examples of the the type of upbringing and experience that dictated this work in that space. Do you have a a quick potted history of your own that those that haven't listened to the episode that I did with you many moons ago yeah, can, can hear a little bit about your...
1: Well, I mean, before theory. I answer that, I think those two people who haven't heard it should go back and listen. Um, <laughs> but I think... And it's funny sort of answering this question with Dad in the room. But in a funny kind of way, and I don't think I'm unusual in this, in some ways I was always slightly running away from just doing what my dad did and unintentionally always bumping into what he was doing. So this isn't going to reflect brilliantly on either of us, but Dad was uh, overseas at the time that I was doing my university applications. And I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And at some point I said to my mum, there's this thing called international relations. That looks kind of interesting. And she kind of laughed. She said, you know your dad's actually lectures in international relations? That's why he does how he got into the whole disaster relief piece. I said, like, oh, right. No, I didn't know that. Anyway, uh, so I applied to international relations politics, at, uh, and politics at university. I loved it. I loved university. I'm not sure I was very good at studying, but anyway. Um, But if I had to study anything, however badly, uh, I really enjoyed that field. And then as I went through exploring my career, my early career, uh, one of the things I've become really interested in was uh, a project that I did in the former Soviet Union in Central Asia, where I was looking to see if, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, people had gone back to their traditional migratory patterns. And I knew before I went that they hadn't, but I wasn't going to blame my chance of getting this amazing field trip. So uh, I went there, and I think there were two reasonably profound things that came out of that. One was I became really interested in the role of the corporate sector in contributing to socioeconomic development, and that began to play a, a sort of layout, what at that time was unknown, um, but a bit of a pathway for my career. Uh, the other thing was I got approached uh, bearing in mind I'm 22, 23 or so at that age, um, just finishing my undergraduate degree. I got approached by uh, a professor from the Kyrgyz Academy of Sciences to get involved in a research paper and write a proposal for the EU. And I went to Dan and I said, hey, listen, they have got this opportunity. I don't really know what to do with it. Like, I barely got a degree. I not because I'd failed it, I just hadn't finished. I don't really, I'm, I'm not an expert in this. And Dad said something that's really kind of stayed with me uh, and been a real, you know, had a profound effect on the way that I've approached my career, which was Dad said, there are no experts, there are very few experts. There are just people who do things, and it's when they do them that they become experts. Um, and so I know that's not your exact question in a sense, but. What that meant was that whole journey of being open to becoming the expert when I didn't know anything meant that at a very young age, I started my own company and there's been a kind of bit of a theme of entrepreneurism in my career and... It also meant that because I was really focused on and became ever more focused on the role of the corporate sector in addressing societal needs, so forth, and his dad's work, which had gone from being uh, very much about governments and, well, we need to look beyond governments. We need to look at the non-governmental corporate uh, organizations, the, um, the third sector, as it's sometimes um, known. And then as Dad's work and, and as disasters became more complex, started incorporating the corporate sector as well. And so as I sort of found my path that was going to be very much my own, then I was coming and coming, oh, look, I'm back at where Dad is as well. Uh, and then as that evolved, I found myself in the urban space and urban resilience, where I started working with Brett. And I remember talking with Dad, and I was like, yeah, you know, what's so interesting is we're working with so many cities now. And so every time that I sort of thought I was charting my own path, I kept coming back to something that one way or another dad was doing so I guess there's a lot in that that talks about you know the the upbringing that I was both overtly and subtly given the happenstance of life and so I guess within all of that there's a certain there's a series of threads and themes but this is how come I've ended up doing what I do how I've come to Love working with Brett. Brett actually was a really important player in helping make Resilient Melbourne, which was the sort of new organisation and umbrella when I was chief resilience officer that we worked with. Um, And so, yeah, maybe I think, and I'll end this bit in a a second, but I think one of the things that equipped me well to take on the resilience officer role is in the most honest and natural of ways, I grew up... In where it was entirely normal to have a discussion around the dinner table of whether or not we should talk about natural disasters or are they just a failure of planning. And so there is a level of this work which is profoundly intuitive to me. I've also been massively accident-prone, and that, I say seriously, has an effect on how I think about resilience and so on. And at the same time, and one of the reasons I wanted to get Dad and Brett here is I'm always conscious when I do this work of having never been a frontline person uh, and there are people who are both differently and in so many ways better equipped to have some of these conversations uh, than I am and so this is a chance to do that. Fantastic.
0: Brett, I've now heard a little bit about the beginnings of both Randolph and Toby and you mentioned, you know, your uh, beginning in the country and you're living in the country, but you also work in urban resilience. How did it come to that? What made you? I,
1: I know you've done plenty of work in, in, in bad planning by the Victorian <laughs> government, which defines Yarra Ranges as urban.
0: All right, there we go. But <laughs> but I guess what 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 can you really say that you've taken from your upbringing and and some of the lessons you've learnt from family, friends, school teachers, whoever it might have been, growing up that have really really cemented the pathway that you were on and that that made you feel the idea of just doing i guess toby your your point of we're not experts when we start we have to do what made you want to do that hard work and and do the doing that led you to where you are today
3: yeah great question and just sort of reflecting on that i suppose it, i think you, as, as the example is in the room here we've got randolph and toby so i don't think the apple you know doesn't fall far from the tree so uh, and I think that's the same for my my folks so being community minded but neither of those had ever been involved in the emergency services to to an extent so I think while they're very much connected to the community life saving was a a natural sort of connection to being part of the community but uh, life saving uh, has this emergency management arm that you know you suddenly you find yourself rescuing people and you think, oh, hey, I did a good thing today or suddenly, you know, that upgrades to suddenly you're driving boats and suddenly you're out, you know, rescuing people that have overturned their boat and upgrades again and you think actually, you know, you continue to build your skills and your capacity and, uh, you know, I think that's the sort of journey that I've been on and then that connected me into the ambulance service so I was a casual ambo down at Lakes Entrance and, you know, you're out dealing with everything from stabbings to car accidents to a whole range of other stuff, but all the way through that it all goes back to that core of, you know, helping people at a time when they're they're worst or or need that help and, hey, we've got some skills and we can help you across the get over that, that particular challenge. Without getting into detail,
1: just give us uh, the th- what was your, your very first weekend as an ambulance driver? You, what were your three things? You I wasn't said, a driver. Sorry, as an ambo. And for anyone, I, I know you've got it. But again, if you're not in Australia, if you can end a word in O, then we will. So Brett was an ambo. That's a, somebody who works in an ambulance.
3: Uh, first weekend there was it was a busy weekend there was a shooting the night before uh, the day I started there was a stabbing and there was a car accident and then uh, we had a, a an elderly gentleman uh, pass away but he'd come off his his horse he was in his 90s and uh, we got up to where he was up in country Victoria it took us a while to get there and there's this old uh, his old dog was sort of had his head on on top of his on top of his um, chest and, um, you know, sad but in the same, you know, went out in a, probably doing what he loved. And it's actually
1: on my, in my top three now of ways to go. Uh, I'm, I'm aiming for about 94 is what I've agreed with my wife. That I'm nice. now going to add the horse with a dog sleeping on my chest.
3: Come out to the farm, we'll get you on that horse.
1: You no, know, I know what happens to things called Toby on your farm. <laughs> we'll get into that. We should. Can you just explain that? Uh, you don't no. want to explain that. We'll just cut that. Um, yeah.
0: So, you know, you were looking really... First of all, I can't get over the image of you saying you jumped out of a helicopter. I want to get into that. But, you know, <laughs> you, you say, you know, there's life-saving. So, you know, patrolling the beaches, I'm, I'm assuming, and doing that sort of work. And then moving into all the other work that you did. Why? You said you didn't like your first bronze medallion day. You know, I'm scared of heights and I don't know if I could save people's lives, you know, on a day-to-day <laughs> basis. What made you overcome your initial, I guess, distaste for that work and then to become the someone with an ESM?
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, I don't know. I think it was probably more the, the situation I found myself in at a camp getting told what to do by other people that are at the same age and it's sort of like a military operation and, and I sort of always push back against authority in some ways so in some ways I probably want to be in charge so that sort of was the pushback but uh, I think where I had some amazing mentors and amazing people that uh, looked after me down at the the life-saving club in the sense that they were you know, people that'd gone through it years before and they sort of adopted all of us there and we're sort of given a lot of responsibility. So, you know, at the age of seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, you're given here's a here's a vehicle, here's a boat, here's you know, you've now in charge of this beach, don't let anyone drown. You know, these the two flags that you put up are pretty important and um, there's a responsibility to make sure that no one no one gets injured and, and um drowns on a on a day. So I think that's all sort of distilled in into you, uh, but it becomes part of the part of the reason why you do it. And that that first rescue, you know, is pretty amazing. And you know, normally it's the people that are more experienced sitting on the beach; they'll know who's going to get into trouble before you even do, or before they even know. Uh, and I've been. You know, we moved clubs, so I moved clubs down to uh, Woolamai down at Phillip Island. So there, we, we used to have play a game. As people were coming down the, the ramp, you'd sit there and go, "I reckon in uh, twenty minutes I'll be rescuing that person." And sure enough, and and to to the extent that we'd play the game and say, "In twenty minutes, uh, you know that the seventeen year old bronzy there in front of us, he'll be rescuing that person." And sure enough, you'd be you'd pick them from a mile away. So you just you become good at it.
1: It's interesting you mentioned then um, I stuck with it had some great mentors, and I 'm thinking we had Darren Pereira on a few sessions ago, and he spoke you know very clearly about how the mentors had changed his life and the importance of 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 them not just for himself but in, in all the inspirational work that he does with young people and how he encourages them at part of finding their own path is to find their own mentors i 'm just wondering. Dad, I think I'm going to stick with Dad. It feels strange to call him Randolph. Uh, I'm just wondering if, you know, again, particularly as you made the transition, you know, coming out of publishing companies and academia, and whether there were particular people or influences as you try to progress. so Brett was coming off and somebody just sort of starting their career and those mentors helped him get into it, but you made a conscious decision to change career and whether or not mentors played a role and, and if so, how. It's a
2: very interesting question. The problem with the question and the opportunity of the question is that it really does begin to get one into very personal aspects of one life. one's life. You know, one of the things that I've constantly found in dealing with disasters, emergencies, etc., and as I look back in my own career, it is that there are really some very fundamental choices that one makes. And Without turning this into a psychoanalytical drama... You have got a couch just behind you. Yeah, but it's got my iPhone. (laughs) One of the factors that was so important in my career to try and get involved in disasters, emergencies, etc., was my wife. And you could sort of say, well, why... Because that kind of involvement required a very fundamental choice. And that was, do you choose the family, or do you choose many other people's families? And I never forget, my wonderful wife at the time was washing dishes as I came home on leave from, I believe it was Rwanda, but I can't remember. And she was washing dishes, and the kids were sitting around the table. And she said, I know you try and save thousands. Have you ever tried to save three, two children and herself? And in no sense was this an attempt on her part to draw lines and to say, you shouldn't do this, and. But rather, it was a sense of the complexity, the perverse choices that one has to make, and in that sense, Uh, I think that is something that I remember very much as one of the difficulties of getting involved in, quote-unquote, the humanitarian sector, the choices one has to make. I think that's at least one contribution I'd make to where I think this conversation is going. This podcast is about, in a way,
0: one of the initial purposes of the podcast was to find out how people were able to find and identify their values and their beliefs, and then how they were able to turn those into actions. And you mentioned the idea of choices, and and how do we make these choices? Because it seems like we make choice A. What are we sacrificing with choices B to Z? You know, um, but both in your personal lives and career, I guess what I'm noticing is that Brett, on a very on a, on a more local level, but a, still a very large scale, helping lots and lots of people, but maybe in a more one-on-one manner, and many one-on-ones in a row, at least early on, with your life saving, and then you moved into creating plans to try to save many, many people, um, or at least give them a, a more of an opportunity to thrive and less of an opportunity to suffer. And I guess your work, Randolph, in a way, started out on a more macro level. Would I be right with saying? Did you you started on the on the big picture, and then maybe had to work your way? to the individual, and in this case your family. What experience did you have on, in the field that I guess made you so concerned and driven to to do the work that you needed to that made family almost feel obviously you love them but they they had to take a back seat in this situation? What sort of experience, what were you doing at that stage that made this a very difficult choice to consider? Because in my life I go, okay, families first and then My job and all of these other things which are really important to me, but it's sort of that. But I could, I can understand being in a position, um, depending on the work that you did, where it's just like, hang on, I'm needed in this situation to save the thousands. So, what were those experiences and and what were you, yeah, what were you doing? What were you doing on the ground?
2: Uh, Let me just respond to part of your point in this way. I think part of what made this feasible was the person who I had married who said she would deal with this very complex situation. She was also an academic. Uh, She taught psychology, while she at the same time dealt with two children who were going to schools and far away, and who also was feeding the pigs, the goats, the sheep, and the ducks. So And the dogs and the cats. So basically that enabled me, someone who's willing to let me do that, to let me make that choice was a fundamental point. And I think in all honesty, and I'm not sure how the listeners of this podcast uh, interested, they would be in reflections on a particular person's family life, but that was a key consideration. That said, to be perfectly frank with you, one of the key factors was that I really found my way. I found my profession, which is embarrassing because then you say, well, hang on, are you there to help people or are you there to deal with your ego? And that's a challenge. I won't mention the fact that the particular organization I worked for compensated me quite well. Without going into the details there, that was a touch of a stimulus. So between a choice-supported by my family and by my wife, a sense of fulfillment of me and what I, where I saw myself, a sense of being able to help others, and dare I say, very practically, a sense of remuneration that drove me to make that particular choice. And so that choice was made, and that explains the path I took.
0: And uh, for those at home listening that don't actually know the
2: specifics of some of the work that you did, what were you doing? I think there were two levels at two different stages. The first stage was which I might call planning. I was asked to be planning in terms of prevention and preparedness, less response, Uh, and that's what I did in Ethiopia initially. And then when I moved over to Sudan, I started moving more into the direction of emergency response. And that involved not only, if you like, the design, but coordinating agencies, intergovernmental organizations in the UN, non-governmental organizations such as the Red Cross, such as World Vision, CARE, etc. And I think if you say, what were you doing? What is that proverbial bottom line? What explains what you tried to do from that point on? It was trying to coordinate a range of organizations, different types of styles, different types of visions about what they should do into a coherent form where they could work together and really deal with the situation in a creative, coherent, and harmonized way. Now, I hope the interviewer will not ask me, was it a success? Uh, but leaving the, your question at that point.
1: No, I'll ask a question, which is I'm mindful that when you were giving your, intro, your description of, of your career, Brett, and some of the things we're spoken about, very much being part of community, and even now with all the work that you did with the Yarra Rangers during and following the fires, being part of community, living it, was part of the value that you offered in many ways. And I'm listening to your description, to of the coordination working at a, a whole-of-country level in many, if not all cases. And whether or not, depending on where you enter into an emergency situation and the scale of that, whether or not, there is an element where you are much better able to do your job because you're part of community or whether in other contexts or all or I'm sure there's nuance actually not being part of the community being deeply compassionate but distanced is also important do either of you have thoughts on that
3: yeah for sure so I think um part of that is that I think having the understanding of Being part of a community that's been impacted by an event is uh, you can reflect on that. So I've been lucky in my career in the sense I've been part of community and being impacted by events. So whether that's down in East Gippsland or uh, in the in the Yarra Valley, and then through to uh, then being part of the the system and being very much you know responding to that to being part of the the state and being part of the planning. So being part of the the preparation, the, the planning to go forward and then looking at the state level and looking back in to right up to the national level in developing, you know, major national policies on how we, we look at risk reduction in Australia and how we we reduce the impacts of, you know, climate change and, and the impacts of that. So all that uh, linkage from the bottom through to the top makes for a rounder sort of view on the world. So you can look at it from various different lenses and I think probably the, the other part, which is probably where I've learnt a lot is probably in the last five years and actually through that Indigenous lens is probably been where the penny has dropped and it is that moment of clarity, I suppose, where the that Indigenous lens is the missing piece for Australia. There's some amazing wisdom that, you know, potentially is part of the DNA of this country that we're not tapping into yet.
1: And let's come back. I'd love to get your thoughts, Dad, on the, the same question, you know, that local representative etc or the distance and so forth and then perhaps we can come back to your indigenous comics i think there's some real richness that be worth exploring there I must
2: admit, I think Brett's point is so fundamental, so important, and opens up some real criticisms about the work that we did in the United Nations in dealing with the crisis affected. And my apologies, I think a couple of you have heard this before, but let me just quickly say that one of the things that I remember from Rwanda where there was a genocide that uh, led to 800,000 people being killed in three months. One of the things that we assumed is that we knew what those affected populations would require. We provided what we saw as emergency assistance. And one of our greatest failures was, in this sense, not providing the psychological, the social psychological support that people needed in this situation. But it also opens up something that Brett said, and something that I became increasingly aware of, and that is, how about communities? Don't communities have a sense of what they need? How do you engage in community? How do you discuss? How are they involved in your program? How do they say, this is what we need? This is what my children need. I know this. One of the fundamental lessons that I've learned, and that is we don't engage communities effectively. And if I may just make one more point in this regard, the United Nations uh, and the World Humanitarian Summit, which was organized by the UN Secretary General in 2016, made a great attempt at talking about localization and the way that you had to engage local communities, etc. And everybody, and dare I say, including the donors, accepted that completely. But now, which is just about six years later, what has really seemed to be more and more evident is that the concept of localization began to dissipate, that organizations who were the traditional international organizations, found their way not to engage locally, but to work their way around, if you like, the resource implications of providing assistance to the locals so that they could assist themselves. And to that extent, I think Brett's point about localization is so fundamental for us to learn. And by the way, Brett, I... Uh, I don't know about this in First Nation in Australia, but I'm always amazed how we as humanitarian responders actually didn't even speak the languages of those who were affected. I'm not sure that's necessarily a question here, Brett, but it certainly was for me in all too many of the situations I worked in.
0: Yeah, just a reflection, and I do want to go back to your point, Brett, earlier about... um, As the church bells ring. Do we want those in the background?
2: Oh, I think so. Given this conversation, are you kidding me?
3: (laughs) (laughs) I think you should give a prize out to whoever can work out what time it is.
2: Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, right in. It'll be our first letter. (laughs) Handwritten, though. We get a, you know. I get a lot of abuse, Toby, you know. You deserve it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, we'll get back to your point, Brett, about the Indigenous perspective of what resilience means and, and response means and preparedness needs in Austra- uh, means in Australia. But I do want to reflect on both your points with something that I think about fairly often, which is the role of yeah, local communities and the role of the big state in a way. Because both are necessary and needed. And we've got global concerns, huge problems right now in terms of something like climate change or what to do about uh, nuclear weapons and how they're used, to, you know, to what's happening with our oceans, our, our polar ice caps, our, our population across the world and, and how that's going to be affected with movements of people and, and what's going to happen to the places that they're from and, and where they're going to go and how we can all respond. And that seriously requires some big picture planning at a, at a big macro level by the, the experts, if you will. But, in a way, they're just going to walk, potentially, there's a chance that they'll you know, hire people from here, there and everywhere, waltz into a place and, as you were sort of alluding to, Randolph, come in and be the, the fixers without uh, maybe enabling the, the local populace to understand and connect and feel involved in, in the change and the progress. And I, I guess a, a conversation that... Brett, you might be able to begin with the the work that you've been doing recently, is what impact does it have not only on an outcomes level but also on a a longevity level to involve people that are of, from and truly connected to a community rather than just this big body coming in and doing what they think is best?
3: Yeah, great. I think... Community have a, a capacity. So we're all part of community. So when we talk about community, everyone thinks, oh, it's that community or that community. But we're all, we all, we are part of community. So, and within that community, you've got various different skill sets. You've got various different levels of wisdom. You've got various different capacities, capabilities. And, you know, we don't draw upon that to its full extent. But communities do. They, You know, we see that around the world when we do have events. You know, people do get in there and, and get dirty and support their neighbours and and help each other. I think society has sort of shifted, and I think media's got a, a you know plays a significant part in this and is part of the problem. It tends to highlight. Uh, the people that are complaining, the people that are, are whinging rather than actually pick up the fact that, you know, 90% of the people out there are actually supporting each other, doing amazing things. Agencies are trying to do the best with what resources they've got in dealing with the complexity of disasters. Um, but we tend to sort of hone in on on those people that are disgruntled, uh, impacted severely, that are frustrated with what... They're they dealing with and and you know the media picks up and plays on that um, and then I promise you within months after or hours after that those people would be you know they're on a they're on adrenaline I've been in there so you're on adrenaline one minute you're up one minute you're down and, and they'll tend to to hone in on that yeah
0: just very quickly on this I notice that as a as a teacher and I think just in in the world you mentioned something about the way the world's heading are we becoming separated and distant from being the solution to our problems. Oh, 100%. Because yes. of, yeah, this disconnect and because, this, you know, other oh, experts will come in, these people will come in, they'll fund it, they'll do it, and we better be paid well to do it. Whereas this volunteer idea is imperative. Like, you know, in Australia especially, the, well, the, the work the volunteers do is, is everything almost in, in response, especially in real time. Yeah, what's going on and why are we sort of having this issue of disconnect from you know those people really involved to to what needs to happen
3: i think there's a whole lot of societal shifts and changes happening in that space but i think one of the things that i've learned over the last number of years more recent years is probably through that indigenous wisdom and through elders like victor stephenson and ralphie hume and other people that I consider you know great mates now they um they've taught me an amazing thing in the sense that probably our western ways if i can say of how we prioritize things and you said before you know in your priority you put you know my family's most important then it's my job and da 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 if you go back to indigenous ways or western ways traditionally has been you know i'm the most important as the individual then it's you know my family then it's money and that means work is and you know goes down that list and then environment somewhere down that list if you're Put an indigenous lens on it's completely reversed. It's country is boss, so environment's number one, mother nature. Um, then your mob, so it's community. Then it's your family and and you, and and then money's on the list, but somewhere way down the list somewhere. And I think that prioritisation is fundamental to how you know indigenous ways of knowing, being and doing, and they've been doing that for you know here in australia for at least 60,000 years and if you talk to the mobs locally here in victoria they'll say we've always been here and that has held them that wisdom has grown over those millennia and you know western society's pretty immature really so we've got another 58,000 years at least to to build that you know maturity so I think there's a lot to learn from those Indigenous elders. We need to put country back as number one because we're, we're destroying the planet and we all, we all can see that now on the news every day of the week and we've just got to, you know, flip, flip that whole conversation and I think if we start to build our policies around that and put that into that priority so, you know, country, then your mob, community is second, I think you shift the whole... Whole paradigm rather than putting an economy up there which is, seems to be the driver of everything and, and ultimately is the root of all evils
0: I agree with that completely um, and, and when I said earlier, I guess family number one, I always wish it, there was a sense of community a little bit more. I, I often yearn for that idea of mob in a way you know th- that we have connection that's daily connection of doing together, of succeeding and failing together of all of these things. Yeah, where's, you know, busy putting up our fences and cameras at the door and watching, you know, who's dropping off mail without going out and saying even hello to that that person anymore? You know, those little bits of communication we once had with the person at the shop or the conductor on the tram or whatever it was is all disappeared to machinery now. And in this Western society we've got, it seems just individualist. Your family's everything and, and, you know happy to burn everything else away if, if I'm okay and they're okay. Um, but even on a, on a subtle, like on a superficial lens, because I talk to so many people that say family's number one, yet then they, they, their actions show something very different. So it's even, and I know Gilbert talked uh, a couple of weeks ago about meaning and, and we've lost our sense of meaning in Australia, specific, especially, but, you know, maybe in the Western world. And how do, and we need to find that again, and I think that's key, that Indigenous wisdom, whether it's in Australia or even, as um, Randolph, you were talking about, in, in Africa, parts of Africa too, that there's the wisdom there that probably wasn't uh, taken into account as much as it could have been and, and maybe, hopefully, since 2016, that localization message, there's a bit of that and we can add more to it. In your work, maybe, Randolph, more recently, have you seen a shift with someone like the United Nations and and big organisations like that truly looking at community a bit more? I mean,
2: I think, once again, I feel very comfortable with Brett's concept of community. I think that's so important. But it's not parts of Africa. I mean, I think throughout the globe, community in various ways are the fundamental issue. I'd like to just raise this point about what we mean by community, In Somalia, Somalia was considerably assisted by the diaspora, by people who left Somalia, went to other countries, worked, and sent the money home. What is a community? In Somalia, mobile phone systems were just extraordinary. one of the poorest countries in the world, there was such a sophisticated mobile phone system. And connections were not within a geographical boundary, but rather through mobile phone systems, etc. I wonder if you take a look at some of the boundaries of Africa, the geopolitical boundaries of Africa, to what extent do they define community, or to what extent do tribal, clanic connections define community? So all I wonder is... If you take the world as it is today and where it's heading, how does one really begin to define community? Is it, and I really do understand what Brett is saying, is it the person next door? And those persons next door are always the first interveners, and I understand that. But when we talk about community, should we also be thinking in different kinds of ways of what is a community, what are the dynamics, et cetera? So... Community, yes, but let's be sure we know how to define it for the future.
1: So Matt, with the risk of taking us down too narrow a thing, but just something that struck me then, so what Randolph was just mentioning then in terms of remittances, so worldwide, people from communities who've gone out to other countries contribute three times as much as foreign aid. So, again, back to that point about who's helping whom, community, et cetera. So, actually, for all the self-aggrandizing or uh, sometimes questioning uh, by particularly Western economy countries about the contributions, then people are, uh, anyway, there's some complexity in that. The other thing is, uh, w- which... Africans are being listened to. So if you take a look at what has happened to First Nations Africans or indigenous Africans, while uh, Africa is booming from a urban development perspective, from general GDP, etc., but often at the expense of indigenous cultures and so forth. So that quest for what Brett was talking about, that economic imperative, is as much an issue uh, in lower income countries, Africa, Asia, etc., as we all strive for that model that maybe we need to reconsider.
0: And I think your point about the three times as much help as foreign aid could, could change our view of migration or even you know, immigration to say, by actually allowing a greater number of people in, we're doing a greater service to our country, to the people coming here and to what was back home because they're going to be constantly looking back at that community and helping that probably in a much better way, um, in a more personal way than, yeah, handouts, you know, might do.
2: Can, Can I just add a point to that? Because your point about the diaspora, as you know, I agree with completely. One of the fascinating things about the world situation in which we live is what happens to me as I work in England, having left Somalia to support my family, when the economy of England begins to plummet. And so how does that affect the stability, not merely of England, but also of Somalia? So if you take the diaspora, and I think that point about three times the amount of foreign aid is such a fundamental point, then How do the patterns in quote-unquote economically developed countries impact upon less developed countries? Uh, And I think that's also an issue. The converse of all the benefits of the diaspora is the disappointments and, dare I say, the crises which country X can result in country Y.
0: To start with you and then I'll get to you Randolph as well. So the question is to both of you. Can you talk about an example or two that within your work that have stuck with you for your life like an experience or a moment where you sort of questioned what is this world that we're living on? Like how do we how do we deal with this stuff? Like how do people get through this and will we ever get through this? And then to lighten it up, maybe, huh. how um, how that darkness turned into light and something good that's come out of your job as well.
3: Yeah, that's a hard one. I think there's um, – on my journey there's been a lot and there's, uh, uh, there's some that probably I don't want to really talk about just because it just goes into dark, dark spaces that um, involve other people that it's not their best story as in hasn't ended well for some people. So – I think there's parts of it. I think informative to to me is probably. And I think back, uh, you know, I've had events where I've been been out, you know, in places like Cape Woolamai, which is a pretty big beach on the biggest day you can imagine, and we'd push ourselves all the time, being fit and and young and stupid, you know, going out the back and you you sit there and you get out to the not the third break but the fourth break because it's breaking four four breaks out and. Uh, you get barreled up in a, in a fairly decent wave and you come up um, after holding your breath for a good 30 seconds and uh, after you're already, un- you know, you're already got out there, which is hard enough, so you're, you're short of breath, but you pop up again and you've got enough time to quickly grab a breath before the next one just pounds you and then you, you get thrown into the washing machine again. And you do that for about four times, five times, and you come up and you think, what in the hell am I doing out here? This is This is scary. So... Um, it, that's happened once, probably a couple of times too. But uh, it's those sort of moments where you actually you actually think about your your own own life and how fragile it is, and then you know back that into events where I've been at the other end, where seen where people haven't been been lucky through their their particular events, or people that have drowned, or you know. Picking people up out of the ocean, or picking people up on the side of the road, um, so you get you get a view on on the world that it is pretty fragile, and a lot of those events too. And I think those people that are listening that have been in the emergency management space, so those ambos or fireys that are getting to continue to go out to those events, are pretty amazing people in the sense that they have to deal with some pretty crazy stuff that they sort of block away. They don't necessarily talk to people about those those things, and they they tend to lock it away in, in the left part of their brain and, and, and don't allow it to, to pop back out into their, their front or into the right side or whichever way, however the brain works. But <laughs> uh, that continues and I, I learned uh, a few years back, and probably in the, on the sort of the 10-year anniversary of Black Saturday, uh, uh, we had some work completely separate to Black Saturday but had, we are doing some work with some uh, psychologists and we just happened to be talking about uh, the impacts of continual people, that continual getting exposed to that stuff and how they deal with it and then potentially what happens is your brain fills up and uh, you know a little a little break happens and then suddenly all this stuff that was you've hidden away suddenly is f- at front of mind and I can I can remember that day but I'm glad I had spent time with the psychologist doing some training with them around some stuff and I could actually you know articulate okay that's what's actually happening oh my god this is it you know things that you completely forgot about that you'd seen or, or done you know that that stuff doesn't leave you, um, and you need to deal with it. But it, it's a challenge when you you've got to back it up the next day. So that the event that we spoke about being an ambush my first day, which is pretty rare in Lake's entrance too, I, I'd say that you, you know very rare to get a stabbing, very rare to get a shooting, very rare to get a a car accident, and a whole range of other things. But um, to get those all on the same first weekend, you don't have time to even take in the first one, let her go the second one. And I, I feel for the, the AMBOs and those agencies that are dealing with that in the city, that's back to back, back to back, back to back. And they don't get that chance to actually deal with it. So that's probably the bit of darkness, I suppose, but it's part of the, part of the job and part of being a first responder, I suppose. Randolph, what's um,
0: something that you recall that's sort of a, a dark moment in your professional
2: life? A dark moment, but it's difficult to resist that point where the dark moment begins to, if you like, become a good moment. But let me start off with my dark moment like this. It was in the Rwanda crisis, which I think I mentioned, the Rwanda genocide. And we had a United Nations peacekeeping force there and our United Nations humanitarian components. And the peacekeeping forces and the other side of the UN system should have been working collaboratively, very closely, sharing information. And all of a sudden, I found that there was a place called Cabejo, which is in the southwest of the country of Rwanda, in which the new government that had taken over in Rwanda had set up a whole mantle of gun and, uh, and quote-unquote, and, and artillery, and were about to shell a displaced persons camp in Rwanda where the, if you like, their enemy, the Hutu, were based, seeking protection from us, the humanitarian sector. Well, the UN peacekeepers didn't tell us about this. These displaced persons camps were about to be shelled. And that was probably the worst moment that I had because basically I was witnessing a UN system which had come head to head, peacekeepers against the humanitarian, failing to inform the humanitarian and then a humanitarian sector that seemed not to have any initial sense of why they had to come together to coordinate. Because what happened was, and I'm sure that you know, but let me just say, the ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross, has a, if you like, an underpinning, which is, We do not want to in any sense expose or jeopardize our neutrality and therefore we do not work in complex emergencies with other agencies. We have to maintain our neutrality in order to preserve our ability to go into any complex situation. So there I was, outside Cabejo. The whole structure, if you like, was if not falling apart, just not working. Displaced persons were about to get shelled by the new uh, Rwandan army. The agencies were only beginning now to come together. And I'll never forget this moment, from the bad to the extraordinary good, when the ICRC representative a representative from the International Committee of the Red Cross, knocked on my door and said, how can we help? And that was just one of those moments which changed psychologically everything, which changed, if you like, the attitude of so many agencies. This is bad enough, threatening enough, where a fundamental change would occur. The ICRC will join us to help deal with the Cabello situation. So from really bad to rather good.
1: Because they did, and it worked. They did. Sorry. And it did work. I, I know that, Matt, that uh, you want to ask about some sort of the more positives and, and innovations and things that are going on. But before we get there, I mean, one of the things that strikes me in... Frankly, the different relationships that I have with each of you, but you know as two people who are some of the people I most enjoy spending time with, um, from whom I get some of my greatest fulfillment in terms of sort of my human relationships and so on, one of the things that i 'm not asking you to go back to the dark place, but one of the things that has struck me on a new on numerous occasions is that each of you are fun and funny and you know we, talk, we were talking before about di- darkness and you're, you're people with whom I share great light and levity and so I'm just wondering that I've been there when other people have asked you about this and I'm not sure that there's an easy answer Brett, maybe you were touching on it in some ways and talking about the left and right side and you compartmentalize but I think it's more than compartmentalizing there's something about your each of your abilities to move ahead to be deeply empathetic empathetic and concerned without being weighed down in other ways it's not necessarily anything that anyone else can emulate but is there anything in that is there anything that you do is there anything you've observed about each of yourselves in terms of how you deal with putting that kind of trauma and what you've witnessed behind
3: for me it comes down to being an optimist so and I'm always looking forward and always looking at, you know, the vision in the future. So it's always a rosy, a rosy future. So I think that's sort of fundamental to, to how I operate in the world. It's as easy as that, I think. I
2: mean, I think that in a sense my <clears throat> own work is based a bit like Brett on an inherent sense of optimism because if it wasn't, if there weren't opportunities to be optimistic, then in a sense, what is one giving? But let me just mention one other thing, if I may go back to Rwanda, because I think this is another aspect of how one deals with this, which you might call the positive side, perhaps. And it's a bit, if you like, um, dystopic, but let me say it anyway. We were going around a particular village. And I happened, as we we're going around, I happened to see this woman who was sprawled out against a wall. And I thought, mm, God, she seems all right. You know, obviously she's skeletal, but nevertheless seems to be holding together. And then I looked at her face. And I realized she didn't have a face, and her skull was completely exposed. She, if you like, did not exist. Skull, no face, etc. And I would have thought, as I stood back, that perhaps, and I thought about this before, that I would have been not merely appalled, but if you like, frightened, disgusted. Uh, nervous, something that, if you like, brought out the most trying and telling emotions. And then I realize what happens all too often, and not negatively, and I just look at Brett when I'm saying this. There's something in the brain, there's a switch that clicks, and the emotion and the emotional reaction of looking at such things as a woman who has no face anymore protects you because that switch just neutralizes everything. You take a look at it as fact, as an objective, and not as an emotion. So let me just say that, (laughs) Brett, in no sense do I want to say you share similar kind of experiences, but if you take a look at one of the factors that have enabled me to cope, it is that switch that goes from unbelievable emotion and panic to a certain kind of distant neutrality and yeah, that's really really interesting actually that that idea of
0: um treating it like a fact and 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 hopefully you can switch back to the emotional side <laughs> when you need to which probably is the the effect of long-term looking at trauma you you may end up either falling over with emotional or losing that emotional side of you. Um, But I would love to, in in maybe the positive sense, get back into what work you're currently doing because you you both talked about optimism and this idea about knowing that there's a a rosy future, you know, ahead. What work are you currently doing, Brett, first of all, that gives you that hope, that makes you look at the world with optimism?
3: Yeah, so there's many angles to that. So I think with the work that, you know, Toby and I have been doing here with Resilient Co is really much or really around, you know, building the capability and capacity of different sectors to deal with the challenges that, you know, is facing and, and will continue to face. I think probably one of the, and this is sort of separate to, to our work, but the the work that, um, you know, I've been doing with the Indigenous communities uh, on the back of, you know, Indigenous wisdom that's come out of Cape York um, and the Cuckoo Taipan um, mob up there and, and through Victor Stephenson. So the work there actually gives me a, a, a lot of hope in the sense that there's a way to solve some of the challenges that we're we're dealing with. Not all of them, but if you just take the, the bushfire and on the back of the, you know, Black Saturday, one of the roles I had was the... Fire Prevention Officer, so I had a team of people at Yarra Ranges there that, you know, had the role of serving notices on people but part of that role is also putting in plans and... Uh, mitigation strategies uh, alongside the agencies on how do we reduce the impact of fire coming into that municipality and, and impacting into communities. So, And on that, we'd always been struggling, or I'd been struggling personally, with how, how do you weigh up the environment because people were saying, actually, let's get rid of all the trees. That's the easiest way to get rid of bushfires. To the other side of the environment saying, we need the trees, don't cut any of them down. And I'm sitting there in the middle trying to weigh up both of those those extremes. And um, sort of playing around with that, and then ended up seeing um, Bill Gamage talk, who's a uh, professor historian out of um, Canberra. And he, he spoke about his, his work, a historic piece of work, uh, the biggest estate on earth. And that sort of led. <laughs> to the whole, you know, Indigenous ways of land management and um, sort of gave me an insight into that. So I said, actually, there's something in this. So on the back of that I rang Bill and spoke to him and he gave me a few leads and then on the back of that continued to do a bit more research to the point I ended up uh, speaking to one of my colleagues at Yarra Rangers um... Gary De Tez and who's the was the indigenous he still is um coordinator there at Yarra Rangers and spoke to him and said look I, I want to do a project or want to do some more research do you reckon um Wurundjeri mob might know a bit about this and he said oh let's ask they've got a meeting coming up in a couple of weeks we can put you on and and see so I got some good guidance from them and so I went to Wurundjeri and said look I've got this idea we want to do some research we want to know how much do you know and and the elders said we don't know anything and by chance I had a one of the elders that's sitting next to me was Uncle David who normally doesn't turn up to those, uh, those meetings but uh, he was head of the what they call the NARAP team locally which is their land management team. Uh, at that point in time and we, we started a conversation while the elders talked about other things and uh, I said, oh, what do you know? And, and he said, I, I actually don't know anything, I'm in charge of the land management group, don't know how we manage the land. And I said, oh, do you want to start a project? And that sort of led us on this project to try and return this lost cultural knowledge back to Victoria for Wurundjeri. So by chance um, I started this project with, with Uncle Dave and we, we started to sort of you know, do a bit of a mind map who might know some information about this and the first first thing I said to Uncle Dave probably a couple of weeks after I said you know you know where what journey are you on Uncle Dave and he said oh look Brad I'm you know pretty sick and you know I've got emphysema I, I, you know I, I don't think I'll be around too much longer and so oh, that's not good and you know we had chats around that and we continued to work on on this project together and uh we had a whole range of names. If you can imagine just this big mind map of just who's who and, and names and all that sort of stuff. By chance about six months later we're, uh, I was about to go to a conference and uh, I don't normally go to conferences but there was some pressure for me to go so I went and uh, I remember the day before reading who was um, presenting and there was this guy, Victor Stephenson, and I thought actually I know that name from somewhere. I'm sure he was on the, the mind map and he was talking about Indigenous fire. Sure enough I connected that up and then went and sort of spoke to him before he got up and and talked and then he he spoke and then as as he came out I sort of said, hey, uh, I've been working with Uncle David and uh, the mob here, what's the chances you stick around? Pretty much I kidnapped him from the conference. I did kidnap him (laughs) basically and uh, he was supposed to head home that night. I said, no, we'll cancel your flights. I'll get you on another flight come with us so I had him within that afternoon we left the conference that morning and it was the first day of the conference we were out of there uh took him up to to Telangi State Forest and uh was sitting up met with a, a few of the elders and and people when as soon as Victor started to speak on country, I thought, oh, my God, we've got someone that actually has this knowledge and this knowledge is not lost. And I was super excited and so were the elders. And so Victor invited us back up to Cape York and we then have continued to um, go up to Cape York and, and learn more and bring that knowledge back and we've been burning on country here. And the fantastic piece to that is is that it's the missing piece in the puzzle. So while I'd been trying to work out how do I you know, balance the environmentalists and the, those that want to get rid of all the trees. Right sitting there in the middle is this ancient wisdom of how land has been managed for millennia and if the research is all backing that up now in the sense that, uh, you know, that, that they've been doing core samples in sort of old lake beds and that sort of suggests that uh, there hasn't been any megafires on the Australian continent for the last 8,000 years and up until European settlement. So, you know, that in some ways you can think that over the millennia, 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 the wisdom has got more refined law has come into place, L-O-R-E, uh, and their systems have come into place which have has maintained this country in, in its health and the ecosystems and the flora and fauna up until European settlement and smallpox and everything else that has has come from that, we've then seen the degradation and we've seen this around the world. So it's not just an Australian thing, it's happened in every continent where Western society on that probably European, you know, expansion has um, influenced an impact into society. Going back to Uncle David, when um, – so Uncle David and I had spoken about, uh, you know, him and he not being potentially around too much longer. You speak to Uncle David now, we've been into this project – since 2016 it's 2022 now like he'd never speak in public he uh, now you can't chat him up he doesn't talk about his health he he he's you know got future um and now that I can see that coming through his his family as well so his son's now the indigenous fire practitioner for Yarra Rangers Council and uh it's just completely changed their whole whole way of of seeing, seeing the world. Uh, they've got a purpose. Uh, they are actually connecting back to culture and uncle Bill Nicholson, I'll I'll finish with this, but uncle Bill Nicholson, who's a Wurundjeri elder as well. Uh, I spent some time with him and I spent some time up with him up in Cape York as well. But, uh, he speaks about Wurundjeri knowledge being like a a 5,000 piece jigsaw puzzle and Wurundjeri because of, uh, European impacts. Um, you know, they've got you know, 200 pieces left of that jigsaw puzzle. Um, but every now and again you'll get, you know, an elder come down from another country, part of the Australia who has some, you know, knowledge and uh, starts to talk. And, oh, and I saw this play out out in Tulangi State Forest. So he starts to talk and then the, the people were saying, oh, that's what auntie used to say. Oh, yeah, old Unc used to say that too. So they're connecting up and then uh, you'll have a scientist there and, and the scientist says, oh, yeah, the science backs that up. And, yes, that's, that's correct. And then you apply the knowledge on country And so you put that fire, the right fire on the right country at the right time and then suddenly the environment comes back and tells you you've got it right and suddenly you instantly find another 50, 100 pieces of the jigsaw puzzle just suddenly are now available because country is coming back to health. So you can start to apply medicine because the the right plants are in the in the right country you can apply tool making because the everything's starting to connect up. And you can see the the plants and the, you know, the animals are also connecting into that wisdom as well. So it's been an amazing journey, but it is from a bushfire piece until we fully grasp indigenous fire practitioners and, and their their way of managing landscapes. We will continue to see the mega fires until we we flip that around and that's me from being someone who's sat on the other side and fought fires as a fiery and uh, being been part of the, the planning regime. Definitely the answers sit with, you know, people like Victor Stephenson. And and
0: you being an optimist believe that this
3: will gain traction and be the way forward? Yeah, it is. So since then, um, so me and oh, was a, quite a number of us sort of joined forces up at uh, one of the workshops at, up at Cape York and we've continued to connect up and we've ended up forming up the 5-6 Alliance. Um, and out of that, that uh, we've been able to raise... Um, some good money uh, out of you know people's goodwill, and then we've got our first big grants in recent times, and now that's employing fire practitioners, including Darren Wandon, who I spoke about before, across Australia. And the, the plan is to have a, you know at least a hundred, and, and and we're hoping you know probably 500 Indigenous fire practitioners employed across Australia that are you know bringing this knowledge back into communities so that community can lead this and not agencies or the universities, so that community. The mobs can actually lead and determine how they want to share their knowledge uh, but regain that knowledge and get their country back on on health and it's up to them then to determine how how they want to manage their landscapes and bring the rest of us with uh, you know with them on their journey.
0: And now to you Randolph uh, same question applies you know either the work that you're either currently doing or you're most recently doing um, and that you're seeing in your field what gives you hope
2: and what makes you that optimist you said that you were yeah thank you very much well <clears throat> as opposed to brett who really said that he wasn't that keen on conferences brett i find myself going to all too many conferences that said uh, there are things that i'm directly involved in where i think there is hope and optimism there are things that i am really not directly involved in but if you like, from an academic point of view, am observing. Let me start with the latter. I have always been concerned, as perhaps uh, it uh, came out in some of my comments here, that the United Nations system has some very serious flaws. I think this is recognized by the Secretary General last September, that September uh, 2021, uh, in which he said, we, the United Nations, have come to a point of either Breakthrough or Breakdown. And he said what we need to do is to become far more all-inclusive. We cannot just rely on states, overburdened states. We have to look at the private sector. We have to get more involved in community organizations. We have to get more and more in institutions like science, international science councils. We have to bring on board more representative bodies of the global community if the United Nations is going to have any significant sustainability and future. And that made me very positive. I thought, yes, that's very much the way to go. And so we've done, and my, if you like, apologies to your audience, we have done work on polylateralism, which tries to see how this is going to work. But the optimism is that we have a United Nations system that is becoming more sensitive to the way the global community functions. I think added to that, in which I am more directly involved, is a study that we've done and doing with the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, uh, the OECD, And that is to see to what extent COVID-19 has really transformed the way the global community deals with this kind of global problem. No one is saying that this is a model for the future. But what one is saying is that if you take a look at the way the sciences, governments, communities have begun to interact, there really is a hope For optimism. So the changing nature of our formal constructs, the way that these different bodies now interact, relate, share data, look for common solutions, for me, gives me at least hope for
1: optimism. So the nature of optimism is inherently forward-looking. And so... As we look ahead to drawing this episode to a close, maybe there's an element of looking ahead in, in the question, but perhaps most likely some looking back. You've both touched on the incidental ways, in some ways, in which you ended up doing what you're doing, but you are both very clearly dedicated practitioners in your respective fields. So if you were to identify a particular moment of clarity, the point of inflection or realisation which led you to really be doing what you do, what would it be?
3: Probably for me it's probably I think I was was probably 30 and I had that question of why why do I do what I do and uh, I reflected back. It actually probably goes back to when I was a small child and uh, back in those days if you can imagine my family was in the uh, we had the XP Falcon station wagon which is a you know 1972 sort of station wagon big beast of a thing and in those days kids didn't wear seat belts. so uh, my sister was in the bassinet uh, she would have been maybe six months old or uh, under, under 12 months she was in the bassinet so my brother I would have been four or five, something like that. So uh, she'd sort of got out of her bassinet and pushed up against the car door and the actual door opened while we are driving down the road. And I reached down and uh, I think I was on the other side but I reached down and grabbed her and pulled her from not falling out of the car and pulled her back into the car. And I think I look back at that because I my parents were obviously thankful and uh, – and they made a big fuss out of it. But I think at that point, I think that was probably the reason why I became the person I, I have.
1: That's gorgeous. Yeah, 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 Thank you.
2: I think, without adding too strange a twist to the question, I think it was back in 1967 that my father was involved in developing, along with many others, the... International Space Treaty, and how organizations, bodies, states would deal with outer space, collaborate, or dare I say not, and what would be the penalties if not. I'm not sure if the mathematics is going to work, and I'm desperately trying to do it, but I think something like five decades later, which is 2022, I am now involved in trying to get my constituency, the international humanitarian sector, to start thinking about the problems that would occur, that would create vulnerabilities, disasters, should, for example, outer space be abused and its impact on the planet. So sometimes on occasion, but not at conferences, but in classes, I say... How many of you have mobile telephones? And virtually everybody raises their hand. And then I say, what would happen if a meteorite struck the cyber system, which is increasingly being developed in lower orbit, outer space? And in a sense, my point is merely this, that something that happened when I was very, very young in 1967 is finally, in a sense, coming into fruition as I try and explain, you see, without the outer space treaty, the vulnerability of the way you live on this planet would be intensified. Incredible. Thank you.
0: And and what I took from both of uh, your moments of clarity in a way were how your formative years really have, have come full circle in it and are really a part of what you've done and what you do today and yeah i think it's a a wonderful to a wonderful way to to finish up this finish off this episode which is you've given us so much of your personal stories as well as your professional and um, academic stories as well so i I really appreciate both of your time and um and thank you toby for getting us all together in a room
1: thanks for giving us the platform Matt. thank you both
2: thank you thank you very very much
0: Thank you so much for listening to Moments of Clarity. If you are enjoying the podcast, there are a range of ways you can help us grow and continue to bring our conversations to you. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Moments of Clarity on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast player of your choice. This will ensure you never miss out on an episode. While you are there, you can leave us a review. It really does assist us in getting found by new listeners. However... The biggest way you can help us is to share the podcast with friends, family, colleagues and your social networks. We are hoping to build a community here at Moments of Clarity and want you, loyal listener, to help us build it. We would absolutely love to hear from you and always take the time to reply to your messages. You can get in contact with us on Instagram at Moments of Clarity Podcast, via our website moc-pod.com or email hello at moc-pod.com. Thanks again for listening to Moments of Clarity. See you next time.